Hello, and welcome to All Things Marketing and Education. My name is Ilana Leone, and I've devoted my career to helping education brands build their brand awareness and engagement. Each week, I sit down with educators, edtech entrepreneurs, and experts in educational marketing and community building. All of them will share their successes and failures using social media, inbound marketing or content marketing, and community building. I'm excited to guide you on your journey to transform your marketing efforts into something that provides consistent value and ultimately improves the lives of your audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of All Things Marketing and Education. This week, I am so excited to be sitting down with my friend, Susan Bearden. Susan is the Director of Digital Programs for Innovate EDU. And there she leads something called Project Unicorn, which yes, is my favorite mythical animal. <laughs> I even have a stuffed unicorn that I take with me everywhere in my car, um, fun fact. But Project Unicorn is a collaboration of 16 organizations and I'm gonna have Susan talk all about it, but it sounds awesome. They're all about supporting and promoting the use of data interoperability ability. There we go. Long word in K-12 education. And if you're not even familiar with what that means, don't worry. Susan's going to be talking all about it in this episode. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Susan to give you context. And of course, I want to gush about how we know each other and how awesome she is. Then we'll get started on all things really ed tech, data, data privacy, digital citizenship, all the fun things in between. So Susan is a former teacher and a K-12 tech leader. She has done lots of amazing things. I was just saying right before the episode, of it, I love this chance to dive into your bios because I get to gush at how awesome you are and, and the impact you've made in K-12 education, really, Susan. So she has served as the chief innovation officer for COSIN. Wow. Um, has been a senior fellow at the U.S. Department of Education, the Office of Ed Tech education technology there. And Susan has literally written the book on digital citizenship. In 2017, she wrote Digital Citizenship, a Community-Based Approach. That's the title of the book. We will put it in the show notes. Don't worry. And last but not least, she was named one of EdTech K-12 Magazine's top 30 K-12 IT influencers for 2022. Gosh, that's a lot. Um, so we are going to be talking about all things data, data interoperability, what it is, why it matters, how it can benefit ed tech companies, um, why educators should care about it and look for it when they're choosing ed tech products. We'll get into cybersecurity, data privacy, all of that stuff. And there's a lot of interesting things going on in ed tech right now. But before we do, I would like to embarrass Susan a little bit. Um, Susan, I couldn't remember the exact moment we met, and I assumed it was on Twitter. So I did a little digging, and sure enough, we really, it felt like we were mentioned in Twitter here and there, in a, but we got to, or I was a guest moderator on EdTech Chat when Tom Murray was running it, and you were like a co-runner of that, I remember, and he threw me in kind of randomly, but it was 2014 when, when I guess moderated that. So oh it was my almost, goodness. That was almost 10 years ago. Like, what a trip. 
Um, and it gets better. You were actually one of the people who volunteered to be a mentor for my first ever ISTE speaking session. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that because I didn't, but I had a bunch of like awesome people like you that were mentors. And I turned our ISTE session into a hands-on workshop of teaching people how to tweet because I thought it was ridiculous to just like sit on stage and go here are all the ways you can use Twitter. Like, no, let's actually use Twitter. So y'all were going around and floating around and helping people learn how to set up their accounts and tweet. And I just thought that was so cool. Um, and we never met in person and you just decided to jump in and be a mentor there. So I'm going to let Susan take over. But before I do, I just want to end with Susan is really one of those people that that does take a leap of faith of some crazy lady on Twitter. And she helps them out in person without even really I think I just threw out a random ask on Twitter. She is passionate about helping others, you know this, but also you can tell with her career, her lifelong career in education, she is passionate about proving improving K through 12 education. Um, Susan, I believe you are a unicorn and, and not the weird sparkly kind that was in Tom Cruise's legend that was a bit weird, <laughs> the, the 80s movie. But, but really the kind of person that lights up a room and shows people, I feel like you're kind of the guiding light of like, no, you should do this. This is the right way to go. This is the most ethical way in the world of ed tech. So <laughs> there you go. I want to welcome you, Susan, to all things marketing and education. Thank you so much, Eli. That's the nicest intro I've ever gotten. My goodness. <laughs> Thank you. You're so kind. <laughs> and yes, I feel like I've known you forever, but I'm so glad that you figured out it was Ed Tech Chat because I just, I didn't know when was the first time we met. I've just known you forever. Obviously 2014, that really actually does kind of feel like forever. So that makes sense. Yes. Especially with the pandemic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there is before COVID and after COVID. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't we, I want to dive into all the things that you are known for, but I don't think people probably ask you this question enough. And it'd be, I'm personally curious on just the beginnings of you. Like, I'm curious on why education for you? Why K-12 education? What inspired you to say, I'm going to get involved in this crazy industry? <laughs> well, you know, that's really a great question because I have a totally non-traditional education background. Um, so I actually started out my professional career as a professional musician. So I have a bachelor's degrees in English and viola performance and a master's in viola performance from the Cleveland Institute of Music. And I actually started my career as a working orchestra musician. I got a job in Jacksonville, Florida after I finished my master's. And that's actually how I ended up in Florida. And uh, my husband and I now split our time between Florida and Connecticut. And I was there for a few years and then I knew I didn't want another orchestra job. And I, I, uh, started a doctorate at Florida State and I was on the faculty of music camp and discovered completely by accident that I was really enjoyed working with kids and I was good at it. And now for context, you should know both my parents were teachers. My father was the 1984 Connecticut Teacher of the Year. He was a Milken Foundation Award winner. I mean, he was a living legend in our hometown. So never when I was growing up did I even want to think about going into education because you know, when you're the daughter of a living legend, that's kind of a hard thing to live up to. So um, I was on this camp. I just discovered I enjoyed working with kids. And I sort of 
um, kind of sort of accidentally uh, fell into a teaching job, teaching strings in Brevard County, Florida. That's actually how I got into education was as a music teacher. And I did that for six and a half years. And the, all the time I was doing this, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I was really interested in technology. I was really interested in how technology could be used to solve problems um, and to make things better. Uh, but I didn't have a lot of access to it as a as a traveling music teacher. So I decided to go back to school and I got a degree in IT and um, I got a degree, actually my degree was in databases, database administration. And I got a job at an uh, independent school in Melbourne, Florida, managing their student information system. And I originally thought, okay, well, I'll take this job for you know a year or two and then I'll move on to industry. I wasn't planning on staying in education. And then after 10 months, they promoted me to IT director. And that's my extremely unplanned for and not anticipated career and technology management was born. And I uh, did that for eight years and it was very rewarding. I tried very hard to, I, viewed, I view uh, being an IT director as a, or just working in a K-12 IT department as a, as a service role. So we are there to help everyone else do their job better, do their jobs better. And that includes teaching. So how could we support teachers and help them do their jobs better and help them educate kids better? And so that's that's sort of my mantra with technology, you know, to this day, even though I'm no longer in a school-based role, it's how can we leverage technology to improve education for kids? And that can look like so many different ways from uh, whether that's the actual use of technology in the classroom to leveraging data interoperability to help better support students. There's so many different ways technology can be used to support education. And that's, that's where my sweet spot is. That's where my passion is. Yeah, thank you for that. And that's really interesting. I don't know if that says anywhere in your bio, your back, your background in music and probably not. Yeah, because that goes back a while. Yeah. Do you still play and get out there every once in a while? You know, I did up until about three or four years ago. I was I used to I would freelance on a part time basis. I had private students for many years about I just stopped playing about four years ago just because as I get older, I have disc issues in my neck and playing the viola is not fabulous for um, your neck, unfortunately, <laughs> going like this for hours on end. Not super good. But um, so I do miss it. But I do uh, still support uh, my colleagues who are music teachers and still passionate fan of music and uh, the role that it can how it can really support students and um, help improve their lives. Agreed. Well, let's get into the things that you're into now, and you've got a lot of cool information and resources you can share, but let's first start off on like, what the heck is data interoperability and what it is not, because I see other people kind of confusing the term. And then like, let's talk about why it matters to, to the educators listening and to the ed tech folk listening. Absolutely. So interoperability is the eight-syllable word that no one can pronounce, let alone define. So congratulations, Alana, you got it. <laughs> I tried really hard. I tried really hard. It doesn't really roll off your tongue. You say data interoperability and people's eyes glaze over. They're like, interoperable, what? 
but basically, you benefit from interoperability every day. You just don't realize it. So uh, how we at Project Unicorn define data interoperability, it's the seamless, secure, and controlled exchange of data between applications. And in education, the goal of interoperability is to focus on better informing instruction and driving student-centered learning environments. So you might say, okay, well, what are some other examples of interoperability? You say I benefit for, from interoperability, how so? Okay, so I'm just gonna look at my Bluetooth um, AirPods right now that I'm using. These will work with both a PC and a Mac. And the reason is because Bluetooth is a wireless standard that has been agreed upon by all of these different companies. So whenever they make a Bluetooth enabled device, it doesn't matter who the manufacturer was or what type of device it is, it's going to work with Bluetooth because Bluetooth is an, is an agreed upon standard. Actually, Wi-Fi is another example of uh, an agreed upon standard. So that's why, for instance, um, you don't need to have uh, different wireless cards every time you go to a Starbucks or uh, to another restaurant to use their Wi-Fi or to your house because it's an agreed upon wireless standard. Uh, another example would be the ability to uh, get ATM money um, from a bank that's not your own. So you can, you know, I might bank with one bank, but if I go to a Wells Fargo and I want to withdraw cash at an ATM, I can do that. That's because the banks have gotten together and agreed upon data standards for banking transactions that allow you to withdraw money from a bank, even though it's not your own bank, and it'll come out of your account at your bank. Same with another example would be um, checking flights on Expedia or Google Flights or Kayak. Uh, the reason that you can uh, see all the flights available from all the different airlines is because they have agreed upon data standards that they use to exchange information. So really, interoperability, it sounds like such a really scary word, but it actually underpins so many of the conveniences that we take for granted in modern life. This is a really bad example, but let's just say it's like the common core of data. <laughs> it's like it's creating standards, right? Yes. Freon, I know that's a trigger word for a lot of people, but like uh, it's creating agreed upon standards that everyone uses so it, the data can flow freely between devices, right? Exactly. Okay. So in the world of ed tech, tell me how that affects the classroom, the teachers, the administration, all that fun stuff. Well, one of the challenges that we have in the ed tech space right now is that a lot of ed tech tools don't talk to each other. And I'm pretty sure that lots of teachers can relate to the fact that they have their students, you know, they may be using four or five different tools, but to get that data into a gradebook, they have to download the information into a CSV file and maybe do some spreadsheet manipulation magic in order to upload it to their gradebook or to be able to con combine information um, from other sources um, in order to evaluate that data. So what we at Project Unicorn are doing is we promote and support the use of open data standards, which makes it easier for uh, educators to access and make use of their data because in other industries, I mean, I think education is probably 20 years behind other industries. You hear of all these other industries that are doing all this incredible work with data analytics and predictive analytics. And But education, because uh, tools tend to be 
siloed. They're created for a particular use case and not with a thought for the broader ecosystem. Um, they often don't talk to each other very well. And kind of um, one example that we, we like, to, I kind of like to call it the gateway drug to interoperability is uh, single sign-on. So what single sign-on is, is the ability to use a single set of login credentials to log into multiple products. Uh, there may be examples of, for instance, in some cases, you've probably all been to a website where it says you can log in with Facebook or log in with Google or um, log in with uh, you know Apple ID. That's an example of single sign-on. In education, that can uh, look like a lot of different things. There's several different services. Uh, like uh, Clever or ClassLink or Identity Automation or GG4L that you know provide single access where students ha just have to remember one username and password and they can log on and they can access all of their ed tech tools. That's a very basic example of interoperability, but it's a very powerful one because I'm sure any teacher can attest to the amount of time lost, instructional time lost, trying to deal with students and resetting passwords. It's ridiculous and it doesn't get easier when they get to high school. <laughs> that hasn't been my experience either. So that's just one example of how um, interoperability can streamline education. Another example could be, for instance, say that you have curriculum tools and you want to be able to assign them or you want to be able to, them to integrate into your particular learning management system. That's another type of interoperability, the ability to automatically roster uh, different ed tech tools so that teachers don't have to manually upload rosters and make changes to class rosters every time they get a new student into their classroom. Rostering is another kind of interoperability. And then you have uh, sort of the some of the standards that are used by uh, either at the district level or at the state level to create uh, larger scale, um, either operational data stores or for data warehouses so that you can use kind of predictive analytics. All of that can be made possible through the power of interoperability because if data is not, if, if, if you can't get data out of a system and if it's in one format and then you want to get it into another system and that's in a different format, that just creates a whole lot of extra work, a lot of extra time. And we all know that educators, you know, don't have, everybody, everybody who's working in education already has a full-time job. And that's a really heavy lift to either expect teachers to do or IT staff or data teams to do to be kind of manually manipulating all that data. So the more seamless we can make it, uh, the less work it is and also the more secure it is because anytime you're dealing with like a manual export of data from a system and you're downloading it onto a laptop and then you're uploading it to another system, well, that inherently is less secure than if that data was automatically transferred between systems without human intervention. I have so many questions because this is such an interesting topic, but I want to just recount and probably do it in an oversimplified way of what you just said is that you said data, data interoperability matters because of one, just ease of use, user experience. Gosh, like the, I do see that probably the number one use case I've seen is the integration with SISs, which is really nice as student information systems because the roster does change so much. And it helps with the adoption of the tool. Like if you have a communication system, you can Im immediately have them all create accounts. So, yeah. so ease of use, user experience, you said personalization, where when you do have data commingling, you can start correlating data and, and providing insights to better deliver instruction. 
Um, and then you said security too, because yes. then you're not dealing with all these files and all that stuff. Did, did I miss any other benefits of, of what you were talking about? I think you caught a lot of the major ones. Um, absolutely. It definitely, uh, all of those are important benefits of interoperability. And when you can bring together data from different sources, like so often, how many times would it be helpful if teachers could look at all of their student assessment data and their attendance data and their uh, behavior data and um, maybe some other types of data. And if they were able to look at it in a single location without having to go hunting down and logging into multiple systems to try and draw, try and draw conclusions or to get a picture of the whole child. And that's really what it's about. At the core of data interoperability, we're really talking about how do we help improve instruction? How do we help personalize learning for kids? How do we identify students who might be at risk for a dropping out? How do we identify that student who always happens to be absent on a Thursday and it turns out they have trouble to getting school on a Thursday? And that's something that the school might be able to help with. There's, there's Once you have that data interoperability in place, it's like the potential use cases for improving education just grow exponentially so you said ed tech is behind generally in this how behind are we and you know i'm curious of like since this is your job you probably see districts that are very high on the spectrum of data interoperability like can you talk to me about what it looks like in that full-fledged here's what it is but it sounds like that's the exception and not the rule generally in ed tech right now right Absolutely. There was a recent, COSIN does their IT leadership survey uh, every year, and I believe they, they, in their most recent survey, they were talking, and I believe the statistics they quote, and I don't have the survey in front of me, but I think it was, for instance, just taking single sign-on. So single sign-on was the most uh, implemented aspect of interoperability in K-12 schools that they evaluated or that they surveyed. And I think uh, 47% of schools said they had partially implemented single sign-on, but only 33% had said they had fully implemented single sign-on. And so when you think just about single sign-on, then you think of what are some of the ramifications besides the loss of instructional time? Well, with the rise in cybersecurity attacks in school, ransomware um, and other hackers, a lot of schools are finding that they're uh, costs for cyber liability insurance are skyrocketing, like more than like doubling or even tripling in a single year. And a lot of uh, those companies are now requiring multi-factor authentication, whereby when a teacher or even sometimes potentially a student logs into a system, they have to also authenticate by either like a code that that's texted to your phone. You know, a lot of people are probably very familiar with that, or they might have an app on their phone, like an authenticator app that generates a code for them, or there might be a physical token that they have to use in order to log in. Well, imagine that you had to do multi-factor authentication and you didn't have single sign-on in place. So now you're taking the, you know, <laughs> 86 classroom tools, and then with already you have problems with passwords, and then you're adding multi-factor authentication onto that, like, oh, mind blown. I don't even want to think about that. So that's just an example of one of the most adopted uh interoperable technologies and some and a few examples of why it's important. But you're right, a lot of school systems are not very far along on their data interoperability journey. There are some that do, that are, and they tend to be, not always, but generally the districts that 
tend to be further along in their interoperability journey are often the larger districts because they have uh, more resources, quite frankly. You know, it's very hard. You know, there's a, a shortage of skilled data analysts in the K-12 space, let alone data engineers in the K-12 space. And a lot of times it's only the largest districts with the largest budgets that have the ability to hire the have the human capacity to implement data interoperability at that scale um so that's it's we also view it as an equity issue and there are alternatives there are other uh there are companies that will for instance host um you know like data services whether that's like an operational data store or a data warehouse or some combination of those that will do kind of the technical heavy lifting for you kind of uh, sort of a platform as a service or a, a software as a service offering but it's still a challenge for a lot of districts because you know we all know the average district in the united states i think is three thousand students and they're not going to have a very big IT team. And you still have those schools where, you know, the IT director is also the PE teacher and uh, also coaches track after school. I mean, you know, school, yeah. schools do not tend to be overwhelmed with, uh, with lots of technology personnel. But that has huge ramifications in, in student learning, student safety, data safety, all of these things. And I was I'm glad that you actually brought it back to here's what it's really like, because everywhere around in my schools, especially with teacher and educator shortages right now, their most schools are losing their tech people. Yes. Tech people are potentially going out of education, going into jobs where they can make more money and they are left with nothing. And that person was already doing 10 million things. Right. And just the yes. basic things, not even thinking about what you're talking about yet. That would be a pipe dream for them. So I think we have a huge opportunity in education and I maybe want to I want to quantify the, the risk we're putting at our, our schools and our, our student data on by getting into this conversation around data privacy and cybersecurity, because you said uh, insurance rates and all that stuff is going skyrocketing up because we don't even have the basics in place. But I do know anyone following news in K-12 education noticed that we experienced the largest student data breach to date recently yes. from the Illuminate education debacle. And I, maybe if you want to just talk from your, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what do you think happened? Um, are we set up to do this again? You know, it feels like we don't have a lot of infrastructure in place. So, and, and how can ed tech people assure um, those that are purchasing their products that their product is safe and not going to do this as well because this this was a pure like there were lies involved right like didn't yes. they say we're doing something and then they didn't <laughs> yes so for just and in case any of your listeners you aren't familiar with the recent illuminate data breach illuminate is a company that makes uh different software products that are used by many schools including some very large districts and they had a recent data breach that was the largest breach of student data in history. I mean, it affected literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of students. I mean, districts all over the country and some of the largest districts at, uh, at the New York City Department of Education, uh, I think was where it was first announced, but uh, it has it, the news of the breach has spread to other districts that were impacted as well. And the reason it was so uh, consequential, not just because of the data breach itself, uh, but um, because 
apparently, from what I have read, Illuminate had attested to the district that they had certain privacy or certain data security protocols in place that data was encrypted on their servers. And it turned out that uh, they did not have all of their data encrypted, which was how this breach was able to happen. Uh, so I would first say uh, to to, to uh, ed tech service providers that it's very important that um, if you say that you are doing something um, with regard to cybersecurity, you'd better be actually doing it because I think this has had um, some pretty significant consequences. And also at the national level, I know there's a lot of movement um, at the federal level towards updating federal privacy laws. There's also been a lot of movement at the federal level with regard to recognizing K-12 education as critical data infrastructure. And so it's becoming a, when it, when it gets to be when you start getting the attention of politicians in Washington who seemingly can't agree on anything except the need for improved student data privacy, that says something. I mean, that's that's really significant. So I think we're going to be seeing some um, significant moving movement in Washington with regard to updating uh, FERPA and with cybersecurity uh, requirements. And so it's not just schools that are at risk for being hacked or being victims of ransomware attacks. Vendors are also at risk. And this is what happened in this case. It wasn't that the school systems did anything wrong. This was on the vendor. So it just kind of adds like, so school systems are like, great. So now not only do we have to worry about student data being protected on our end, but we also have to start really carefully vetting our vendors and making sure that they are, um, you know, protecting their data on their end. And uh, one thing that was also um, pretty significant was that uh, the Future of Privacy Forum has uh, something called the Student Privacy Pledge and Illuminate was a signatory to the Student Privacy Pledge. And uh, the uh, F, uh, the F, um, Future Privacy Forum recently announced that they basically rescinded um, Illuminate's uh, membership with a student privacy pledge and they were uh, turning uh, the matter over to the FTC for additional investigation. So it's a really big deal. So I feel like for the ed tech service providers who are listening to this, I think it's very important that you really take cybersecurity very seriously and that it's important that like for instance sales and marketing people really understand exactly what your product does and doesn't do with regard to protecting student data privacy and cybersecurity. and whatever you do don't say that your product does something when it doesn't <laughs> because that can get you in all kinds of hot water and you're so nice i was like they lied you're right um and i think everything you said is is like now before it schools just had to worry about what they had in their data that was like theirs yes. and now they have to work at worry about how secure their vendors are yep. and, and let's get into that a little bit if i am an educator like looking at just using a freemium tool in the classroom or if i'm a, a it director looking at purchasing an ed tech tool mm -hmm. what are the things you would look for to say oh this is a secure tool that i could feel confident using well, I think one really terrific uh, resource for 
districts is so there's there's several terrific resources that I can refer folks to and I can actually maybe include some of those in the show notes Alana that you can include but um, the student data privacy consortium um, which is you can um, you'll add that to this to the search notes they have um, a national data privacy agreement and there are several states that have adopted versions of the national data privacy agreement and there are some states that require their districts to sign contracts with every vendor they work with, whether that's free or paid, um, that are attesting to certain um, basically privacy and cybersecurity provisions. And that if you join the Student Data Privacy Consortium, and I don't think it's uh, the database used to be free to search. I don't think it's a significant fee to join, but you can actually see the existing contracts that districts have signed with vendors. So if you want to get language, if you say, well, I don't know what kinds of questions I can ask, well, you can search the database and you can see, oh, well, this neighboring district had signed a contract with this vendor or this vendor, this district in another state had signed a contract with this vendor, but here's the language that they used. So districts, even if you are not yet currently required by law to sign districts um, time contracts with all of the tools that you use it's con it's considered best practice and I think it's something that's going to become eventually I think it's going to become standard practice so I would that I think that's a great place to start is uh, to look at the again it's a student data privacy consortium they have a national um, data privacy agreement take a look at what the requirements are there and then build your contract um, based on that and whatever specific privacy laws you may have in your state I had no idea that even existed that is amazing that is a it's gold mine it is a fabulous resource. And uh, in fact, Project Unicorn, we're going to be doing, I'm going to do a little plug. We have a webinar that uh, is, we're doing in uh, late September with uh, uh, the Student Data Privacy Consortium and Access for Learning, which is one of the data standards bodies that also is the umbrella organization for the Student Data Privacy Consortium and with the Future of Privacy Forum. And we're going to be talking exactly about data privacy and interoperability and how do they connect? How do they, how are they related? How are they different? Um, what, what are the considerations you need to make? It, it'll be, it's gonna be on September 27th. And if, if I can get a login registration form by then for the show notes, Alani, I'll be sure to, Alana, I'll be sure to get you one. Sure, it's sure, we'll put it all in um, And then just to open up the umbrella on this topic, just because we've talked specifically about data breach, really, uh, and uh, it's kind of narrowing the field a little bit. I will say that there's a whole gamut of stuff in cybersecurity that we haven't talked about. Um, when we think about, if I'm just an educator and I don't want to look at contracts, uh, I work with a lot of ed tech companies, my team as well. If I go to an ed tech site and they don't have a web page devoted to all the things they're doing to make your data secure, that's a red flag too. So make sure they have all those standards, their COPA, their FERPA. They have privacy statement that it shows they truly care and it's easy to digest. And they have something a little bit more in depth, the privacy policy, because so you can see how long they store your data. And then what happens when they delete a record? All of those things truly matter because data privacy, student data privacy has been in the news since the beginning of ed tech, really. And a lot of the big companies, we have like Remind and Dojo. And, you know, even recently there was a 
not an expose that feels like very tabloid, but there was an article in The Guardian <laughs> about all of the ed tech companies on the watch list. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot going on here. Did I miss like how you would navigate if you were an educator on like just going to a website and trying to figure out if they're safe? Well, you know, one uh, tool that I recommend for educators is Common Sense Media. They have privacy evaluations of different ed tech tools. And they basically, it's basically like a red, yellow, or green rating. And if it, if they have concerns about a tool's privacy policy or terms of service, they will outline it in their review. That's an easy way. It's not by any stretch of the imagination, like the same as a legally binding contract. But for educators who just want to, who are just want to get an, just a market signal, like, does, is this uh, product, you know, safe for, <laughs> or do I need to investigate it more closely? Uh, that's definitely one place that I would review, that I would send classroom educators would be the common sense media privacy evaluations. Yes. And I love how she's recommending neutral parties, that their job is devoted to really um, making sure you have the right information and they're evaluating everything from a standard that they expect for safety. Yes. And then I'm and just then, going to navigate the website. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Teachers aren't expecting, I mean, you can't expect teachers to be privacy experts. That's why you should rely on um, some other folks who've done some of this work for you. And another uh, great resource is uh, Student Privacy Compass, uh, which is studentprivacycompass.org. We can do that for the show notes as well, Alana. But they have, um, they actually have an educator training course on student data privacy that's geared towards classroom teachers. And so it just kind of, helps, it gives educators sort of that baseline understanding of what is all of this privacy stuff? I mean, because, you know, most teachers weren't trained in, you know, understanding legal language and <laughs> nor do they find it particularly enjoyable. So, um, but the student data, student data privacy compass, which is part of the future of privacy forum, does have some excellent resource. So if you go to their website and I'm, I'm actually there right now and you go to audiences and you click on educators, uh, you can see they have an educator's guide for student privacy. They have um, several information um, in, on how to communicate with parents and students. They have their K-12 training. They have a section on security. Lots of good information there. Yes. Okay. So if you are an educator listening, um, all of these resources will be in our show notes. And I hope you jot, just jotted down a couple and know that there are organizations devoted to help you navigate this a little bit in a quick and easy way that we don't expect you to be experts in this, but we do expect you to ask the question now because Absolutely. it's a necessity to start with. Um, and then from the ed tech companies out there, I, I know that you all take this very seriously. Every ed tech company now, it's top of mind, but I hope you walk away with how serious this truly is and just yes. do a quick check on your website, do a ch- quick check on how you're rating with all of these tools that Susan was talking about. Make sure that you're being as transparent as much as possible. And, you know, me coming from communications, it's not something you can just put on your website and forget. You should be talking about it in everything you do, whether it be your webinar, your social media presence. It's something that you deeply care about. Absolutely. And, you know, for those ed, ed tech sales reps, you know, 
take some time to educate yourself about uh, student data privacy. And uh, I know for Project Unicorn, we have resources specifically for EdTech sales reps about interoperability, but make sure that you are familiar with your company's privacy policy and your terms of service, and make sure that you can answer those questions honestly and truthfully. You don't have to be a lawyer, um, but you should know um, the basics so that you can answer questions and really better represent your product. Great. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. I'd love you, given your expertise and everything going around on all things data, cybersecurity, digital citizenship, at the time this episode will launch, kind of in late September, educators are really wrapping up their back to school season. You've been an educator. I would love your thoughts to educators, parents, admins, and maybe even education tech companies that are scrambling. I, you can leave it open, but anything you want to say to them at this time of their lives in a very challenging, unique school year? Well, first of all, I want to say from the very bottom of my heart, thank you to every educator who's listening to this podcast, whether you are a classroom teacher, whether you are an instructional coach, whether you're a building administrator, a district administrator, the past two years have been unbelievably difficult. I can't count how many times uh, during the pandemic I said to myself, I am so glad I am not a school-based technology director right now. <laughs> I just, it's been, you guys have gone through so much during the past couple of years. And I just wanna say, Thank you for the work that you're doing because you do matter and the work that you do matters. And I know that the past two years have been extraordinarily challenging. And I just want to say thank you for the work that you're doing. And to the ed tech service providers, I would ask you to make sure that you are aware of the challenges that educators have been facing for the past two years and be thoughtful and intentional in the marketing of your products. Uh, do not overwhelm teachers with sales stuff during the first three weeks of school. That's just bad. <laughs> There's no faster way <laughs> to turn people off your product than to be uh, emailing them aggressive sales pitches during the first couple weeks of school. I mean, that's just a crazy time for anyone who works in education. And remember that the first couple of weeks of school can be anywhere from uh, early August through mid-September, depending on where schools are located. So you have a lot of schools in the South that start in August. I know my grandchildren go to school in Florida and they are already in school, whereas currently I'm up in Connecticut and they're not starting until after Labor Day. So be sensitive uh, to the fact and make sure that the product that um, you're selling is really going to be helping solve challenges that educators face. Yeah, when we think about back to school, I was just reading, a, I, think, I think at this point it was a Facebook post from somebody in the school system and they said, you know, here's my day. I come in and I see over a hundred emails from ed tech companies, aggressive emails trying to yes. sell them. They are starting their school day and they have to open up this like bomb of an email. Yes. And, <laughs> and some are even doing the old school calling, right? So I think what Susan said around that is really critical. I always talk to ed tech companies and say, in October is when you should start thinking about a unique way to reach out that provides value. Yes, I agree 100%. 
Yeah. So Susan, thank you for those words. I, I will just echo everything you said. Thank you to everyone listening, but just more importantly, thank you what you're doing for education to even just listen and professionally develop yourself and listen to awesome people like Susan shows that you truly care and that you're going above and beyond to be yes. better. And I mean, I am inspired every day by educators being those lifelong learners, being just guided by curiosity and passion and selflessness. Absolutely. And I think you made such a great point. Just the fact that people are listening and that they're interested in growing and learning is a great sign because that's really what we want to teach our students. We want them to become lifelong learners. And by modeling that um, ourselves, as whether that's in our roles as parents, as educators, as education technology professionals, whatever your role is, I think that that commitment to lifelong learning is really important. Agreed. Well, I know we could talk all day about this. <laughs> For me, I'm like a, a learner soaker upper too. I'm like, tell me more all about this interesting stuff because you, I couldn't imagine devoting my entire like day to this stuff. So you know the nooks and crannies. So anybody who wants to reach out to Susan, she will share that in the show notes. But how can people just quickly get in touch with you, Susan? Uh, you can always find me on, on Twitter. I'm at S underscore Bearden on Twitter, or you can also find me on LinkedIn, um, Susan M. Bearden on LinkedIn, and we'll make sure to include my email address also in the show notes. But I would love to hear from you. Um, I love connecting people to information. It is my favorite thing to do. It's one thing I love about my work with Private Unicorn Project Unicorn is that I connect people to resources that help them do their jobs better, and that just makes my heart happy. So anything I can do to support uh, listeners, no matter what your role in education, please don't hesitate to reach out. Yes. And Project Unicorn is also on all the socials, right? Too. So they're on Twitter. Yes. Yes. We are, are at Project Unicorn on Twitter. And uh, I think that's our primary social platform. But yes, definitely check out our website, projectunicorn.org. And uh, regardless of what role you have in education and uh, whether you're at a state level or a local education agency, we've got resources to help you. Great, great. And then the last thing we ask all of our guests, which is a bit of a fun question too, is I get inspired listening to what your answers are around this, but it's it's funny because we're asking you how you stay inspired, <laughs> but education is hard. We have all long days and, and our heart is so invested in what we do. So emotionally it can be draining. How do you keep going in those days that you're just like, I am dead. And we are recording this on a Friday and we are both in that I am dead. Yes, we are both in that I am dead phase. <laughs> like, you are what, right. What are you going to do this weekend or after work to just like put some pep in your step and say, all right, I got this for next week. I think it's important to... Remember, and I struggle with this, but I'm always trying to get better, and I've gotten better at it as I've gotten older, is that you need to set boundaries between your work and your personal life because there's always more work to be done. It doesn't matter what your job is. And especially when I was teaching, I would find I would wake up at two in the morning when I was teaching or even as a tech director, you know, worrying about something or something not going to happen or my students, you know, what, how am I going to handle this in class today or what have you. And I think it's important to be able to set boundaries between your personal and professional lives. So for me, one of my favorite hobbies is dog training. Um, so I do competitive obedience training with my Corgi Ellie as a hobby. So I'm uh, going to a couple of practice dog shows this weekend and I love it because it's the one thing I do that has absolutely nothing to do with my 
professional identity whatsoever. And I'm still a learner and it's a lot of fun for me and it's a great way for me to relax and recharge. So uh, you'll find me out with my dog this weekend and I'm really looking forward to it. That is amazing. I'm just like thinking about Best in Show, that movie now. That was a terrifyingly accurate depiction of the uh, confirmation world of dog shows, which is, I do competitive ODA. It's, it's a little different, but yeah, it was, it was terrifyingly accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fun. Fun it's a good about, movie to watch. It is Definitely super funny. My it aunt, is. Um, on my dad's side, my aunt has been a dog show breeder for since she was 18 and so I've always and she's kind of like that stern character that like yes. <laughs> you know like what was the lady that was the the stern dog trainer that was my aunt so she does yes. Rhodesian Ridgebacks <laughs> <laughs> all right everyone well thank you all for joining us I really appreciate it I, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy hectic lives especially you've already gone through a lot of the back to school and this is such a challenging year so know from the bottom of our hearts we appreciate you you can access the, all the show notes that we were talking about this one has a lot of really usable resources so it's going to be at leoneconsultinggroup.com so that's two g's leoneconsultinggroup.com backslash 30 like your birthday 30 um <laughs> i was going to pretend i was 30 but you know <laughs> that, that ship has sailed um for so we'll have all the resources all the detailed notes too so what did susan talk about what were the themes we're going to put that all up on the show notes and if you like this episode please feel free to give us a five-star review on, on apple or anywhere that you view or listen to podcasts and we will see you next time on all things marketing and education take care Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to dive deeper, you can visit leoneconsultinggroup.com backslash podcasts for all show notes, links, and freebies mentioned in each episode. And we always love friends, so please connect with us on Twitter at Leone Group. If you enjoyed today's show, go ahead and click the subscribe button to be the first one notified when our next episode is released. We'll see you next week on all things marketing and education.